Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Shimona Esrei course. This is Ami, and I want to give you a sense of what you're about to hear. This is installment number two, and here Rabbi Foreman and I continue our exploration of the middle brachot, the bakashot of the Shimona Esrei. We left off last week exploring some themes that seem to be lingering in the background of the language of that bracha, chonen hada'at, God, the giver of knowledge. And we raised some really big questions. Um, did God plan all along to give knowledge to Adam and Eve? And if so, what was the whole idea of withholding it from them in the first place? In this conversation, Rabbi Foreman and I really take a deep dive into that question and explore what's the nature of knowledge that we're talking about? Why would God be withholding it? And what's the ultimate purpose of that? And then how does that play in to this bracha? to when we approach God in prayer and we begin talking about God who wants to gift knowledge to us. Like all the conversations in this series, this is an unscripted back and forth between Rabbi Foreman and myself. So things lead in unexpected directions. And while we may not go as far in the order of brachot as we had anticipated, what ends up coming through is something surprising and sometimes revelatory. So, as always, continue to leave your comments and discussions, and please know we're going to be posting research documents on the website right underneath the screen where you can listen to the podcast, so you can always look at the sources we're discussing for yourself and see some further questions for exploration. And now, without further ado, installment number two. Hey everybody, Ami Silver here. Welcome back. Um, hey Rabbi Foreman, how are you doing? Hey, Ami, it's nice to see you. You are in Israel. I was just there, and now we are separated by a very large ocean, but it feels like you're right here in the same room as me. And other than being in the same room as you, it also feels to me, Rabbi Foreman, like we have, I don't know, 100 plus other people in the room with us. Um, it's yes, been it's really a crowded great. room, I must say. <laughs> it's been really great seeing all your comments. There's been some really rich discussion here on the on the comment board. Yeah, as you know, and, and just to give you a peek behind the scenes, one of the things which I told Ami before getting into this is that um, from my experience with this kind of work, you know, the best chavrusa that you possibly could have is a zillion people mm -hmm. uh, really excited about a project and willing to engage with you on it. And, you know, thank God uh, and thanks to all of you. That's what we've got here. And uh, it, when I chatted with Ami about that, I said that you'll see that the comments invariably will take you in places that you hadn't imagined. People will see things that you haven't, and uh, you'll be very grateful for them. And and at least, I Ami, mean, from my experience, I think that's proving to be true. Yeah, definitely. And 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 I also just want to say to uh, to our listeners that something we mentioned last week. This is this is kind of a different a different kind of product than we're used to here. We're actually sharing some of our raw materials with you um, rather than you commenting commenting on a finished product, your comments really are helping mold and shape some of the directions that, that we're thinking in. Obviously, we're coming with a lot of research, but this is actually part of the process um, as we're going. Which gets actually to a comment that Shuli made on the discussion board uh, when Shuli talked about why it was that we chose this approach as opposed to animated videos, uh, the approach of conversation. And I think the answer is, is because 
Um, we really were trying to create something collaborative here. Ami's got a theory, uh, and he and I have talked about it, um, but I kind of felt that it was the sort of theory that would benefit um, from mm. putting it out there in front of 300 people and getting your combined wisdom and thoughts to really help us develop it. So I really mean it when I say that you guys are partners with us in making this true. And I just in this in this first uh, episode, I, re I really think that that's true. So so uh, I'm excited to continue. So this is episode two. What we did in episode number one, actually, just to uh, you know reframe over here what we were trying to do, is we jumped into uh, a, an an attempt to wrap our minds around the Shmona Esrei. And we started, interestingly, in the middle, right? The Shmona mm -hmm. Esrei has three brachot at the beginning, three brachot in the end, and then it's a whole ton of intermediate brachot. We started with the intermediate brachot on a theory that if we can understand what was happening there, it would help us understand the beginning as well. Mm -hmm. So a couple of you guys asked in the comments, you know, what about the beginning? Um, uh, we do plan on getting there. We haven't ignored it. Um, we think that there are clues in the middle, which will help us understand the beginning. And uh, we we anticipate hopefully coming back to that um, towards the end. What we've done until now is, is you know, really just one strand, Ami. We, we've kind of shown that there seems possibly to be this little intertextual tease going on in the first of these brachot, which possibly takes us back to Eden, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the theory that we had started talking about, your theory, is that it's kind of hard to think about Atachonin Laramdat being the God who uh, freely gives man wisdom, knowledge, without thinking of the tree of knowledge and the issues of whether, in fact, man was giving uh, was giving knowledge to man. And this is really what sort of preoccupied us in our last discussion, this sort of paradox that on the one hand, God, if anything, is not the bestower of knowledge in the original uh, uh, story of the of the Garden of Eden. He is the withholder, seemingly, of knowledge. He tells us that the one tree that we can't eat from is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what we kind of suggested is this tantalizing theory that many of you in your comments asked us to, to try to elaborate further, like where we were going with this, mm -hmm. with this notion that perhaps what the text of Shemun Esri is telling us is that that's actually not the way to read the story, that God was the withholder of knowledge. And what we kind of suggested was that if you played a little game and said, like, what would have happened had mankind, Adam and Eve, not eaten from the tree of knowledge? What we suggested is that possibly God would have given it to them, that God's stance in the original story was actually as the free giver of knowledge, the bestower of knowledge, and that the restriction on the tree was only temporary, and that there was a kind of tragedy in that story. The tragedy was not that we just disobeyed a command, but that we took something that was waiting to be given to us, mm -hmm. that we reached for something, that we grabbed a gift that was waiting to be unwrapped, and that there's something painful about that, right? That imagine grandpa coming to the little kid on his fifth birthday with this beautiful present that he put together and wrapped and everything, and kid thinks that grandpa is not coming with a present, and he's so angry, and you know, it's my birthday and there's no present, and then sees that there's, you know, breaks into grandpa's car and and opens the trunk and yeah. and and rips off the wrapping paper and takes the little toy battleship right that 
that's particularly tragic, right? Because grandpa's just waiting to give you the, the toy battleship. It sort of changes the complexion of the story. So, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that, that many folks asked us about is, you know, where does that theory go? And, and what are some of its implications? And, and why do you believe that that's true? And, and how does it change the story if that's true? Mm-hmm. So I don't want to get involved in that in, in too much detail. But Ami, I want to take a moment to outline, uh, you know, the beginnings of a theory of understanding the tree of knowledge theory. And then I kind of want to ask you how that might inform you know, the way you think or the way we think of Atachon and Ladam Dad going into the next kind of brachot. Um, yeah, Rabbi Foreman, that sounds great. And um, before we, we just take that next step, there's just one other thing I want to add to that here, which is not only is it important to kind of understand, you know, what is the real nature of the Torah's stories um, for the sake of our understanding of Torah. But to me, this also is going to be extremely important to how do I, as a human being here in 2020, it's become 2020 since the last time we spoke, believe it or not. It um, how do I approach God? And what is my conception of this fundamental relationship? This relationship is colored in my mind by the stories I'm told, by the way I understand God's Torah. So, so if I think here's a God and what I know about God is, you know, God created people and they were seemingly really important in creation. But then God's like, no, nope, no, nope, don't touch. I don't want you to have this most important thing that's just mine. And then we kind of broke that rule and are living forever in the violation of that. Well, how does that relationship um, kind of figure into how I approach God now versus a vision where God is the Chonin Ladam Dad? And yes, there was something that that went awry, but but maybe the actual starting point is one of giving, of gifting, of care and love. Yeah, and I think you're pricking up with another theme that we saw in the comments, and I think you're absolutely right. There is no story, uh, perhaps among all the stories in the Torah, that sort of set the stage for how you view this God uh, more mm-hmm. than the tree of knowledge story. Mm-hmm. And it almost seems like if you're right that the Shemona Esrei prayer is picking up on that story, it's doing something not just of interest in biblical interpretation. It's doing something of interest in prayer. It's saying if you want to center yourself on a view of God, you kind of have to ask yourself, who is this God? Is this the javelin throwing king with the long white beard who says, you humans, I know the thing you want most and it's mm. knowledge and you can't have it, mm-hmm. right? Nah, nanny, nah, nah, right? And then look how angry I'm going to be when you get it right? That's one way of looking at the story. Or I think the sages are presenting a radical alternative, which is that's not the right way to read the story. Mm -hmm. The right way to read the story is that God is not the javelin throwing monarch. He's the chonin Ladam dat, right? He's the one who was just trying to give you the most precious gift there were, and you took it before its time. And therein lies the tragedy, and that changes everything. I believe that the rabbis were kind of sensitive to the text when they suggested this. I don't want to get into into all the reasons why I believe that to be true, but just kind of to, to take the idea just a little bit further. One of the questions in the comments that people asked about is, okay, so let's say 
God was the Chonin Ladam Dat, the one who wanted to give knowledge. So why didn't he do it, right? I mean, he had a chance. What was he waiting for? Like, just give the knowledge already. If he's so beneficent, just just give the knowledge. So I want to suggest that there was um, a a method to this madness. It wasn't really madness. That there was actually a predicate for knowledge that had to happen. If you think about knowledge, knowledge is the conceptual parts of our minds. When we make distinctions between good and evil, we're using our minds. And as we talked about in our last session together, Ami, that cognitive capacity to use your mind to make distinctions, to mavdil ben tov right, as it were, to distinguish between good and evil, between what you want and what you don't want, is sort of the essential capacity of human beings. It's what gives us such great power, what fires technology, what fires everything that we do. And yet, there is a predicate for that. There's something that has to happen before you can use your mind to deal with questions of good and evil. Mm -hmm. And I think the best analogy I can give to this, and some thinkers have advocated for thinking about the tree of knowledge in this way, and is to think about it almost as an analogy of growing up, right? When we grow up, there is a time when as adults, we come to use our cognition to make value judgments, to judge good and evil. And yet it's not something we do from our earliest ages, right? Children, and especially young children, don't think cognitively in terms of good and evil, right? They aren't sitting there with a philosophy book thinking about moral dilemmas, 10 people in a lifeboat, do you throw somebody off, shark-infested waters, do you all go down, right? That's a very adult kind of thing to do, to use your mind in that way. And yet... It's not the case that the work that children do in childhood is irrelevant to the conceptual understanding of good and evil. It's just not yet the conceptual understanding of good and evil. Something has to happen in childhood to make the conception of good and evil possible. And it leads to the great question, the great tantalizing question, what is the avoda, as it were, of childhood, hmm. right? In other words, if what we're supposed to do religiously as adults, right? We can conceive of that. We can talk about that, build this relationship with God, learn Torah, figure out what we should do, what we shouldn't do, figure out what God wants us to do. That's all very adult stuff. What's a child supposed to do? So a lot of times they think, well, a child's not supposed to do anything. A child doesn't have any mitzvahs. A child doesn't have any avoda. A child's just a child. You have to wait until they grow up. And that's when they're their avoda. That's when their religious service kind of starts. But I want to argue that that's not true. There actually is an avoda of being a child. There is work, spiritual work, difficult work that needs to be done in childhood, right? Between parent and child, between child and parent, and a child's own mind. And that is what, Ami, and let me put this out to you. What would you say a child needs to cultivate in order to be able to make trustworthy distinctions between good and evil later on in life, right? When you think about people who turn out to be bad apples, right? To turn out to be the kind of people that you don't want to do business with, right? Mm -hmm. And the kind of people who turn out to be good, upstanding, wonderful, solid citizens that you can sort of trust with this great power to make distinctions between good and evil. And those that you can't trust and those that will, will, will scream from now until tomorrow that, yeah, of course, I'm right, and I'm always right, and I'm justified, and this, but that can't see their own self-serving 
motives and everything that they do and that their whole conception of good and evil is warped what really is it boiled down to if you have to play therapist and say mm -hmm. what avoda was there in childhood that one group of people just missed out on and the other group of people had what would you say that avoda was so it's interesting that to me that you kept talking about you know who would i trust who would i not trust because as you were asking what is the avoda of childhood the the word that came to mind is trust. The word that came to mind is building trusting relationship with the adults in my life, which can then give me a healthy basis and grounding framework for me to basically integrate and assimilate everything that I'm given and taught and carry that into adulthood responsibly. Because if you learn to trust between you and your creator, you and your parent, right? How does that influence your interactions with everyone else. So on the one hand, it makes me able to to learn. It makes if I trust the parent, this, the parents, the adults in my life, it yeah, it opens me up to 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 accepting some of the things they have to tell me, even though I haven't come to them on my own. And listen to that word you just used: opens me up. Mm -hmm. You can afford to be opened up to the world if you trust. Right. And the other part I was going to say is it. It allows me to be opened up to other people that I come into contact with also later on. Yes. You are almost like a flower that can open because the world is a good place because your first experience with the world is good mm -hmm. and trusting. And it's okay. You know, it's a funny thing. People always used to say uh, as parenting advice that one of the things that you need to do as a parent is not just be kind to your child and benevolent to your child, right? But you also have to be consistent in your love. And I always wondered, like, why do you have to be consistent? Like, why is consistency so important? Why isn't it okay that I just love a child and actually take care of them? Why is consistency so important? But think about it. Loving a child and providing for them plus consistency in love and providing for them mm -hmm. leads to what on the part of the child? If I know that my parent loves me and provides for me and consistently provides for mm -hmm. me, then what? Then I will have a sense of stability in the way that I walk. In the exactly. Way. Then I know that my needs are going to be taken care of by my parent, mm -hmm. which allows me not to see everything in the world through the desperate lens that I must attend to my needs. Because if I don't look out for me, who else will? I won't have. Yeah. I won't have. And if you think about the kinds of people that you don't want to do business with, if you strip everything away, they're the kinds of people who say, if I don't look out for my needs, no one else will. And therefore, I force myself to look through a lens of good and evil, through the lens first and foremost of what is good for me mm -hmm. and what is bad for me. Mm -hmm. And I begin to confuse what is good for me and bad for me with what is actually good and what is actually bad. And I'll, I'll, I'll add to that, I'm on my own in this fight. There yeah, is not absolutely. somebody else with my best interest in mind who's going right. to provide for me or care for me. Which in yeshivish is a way to, uh, we might say, to be malabed schus on those people, to translate. It's not that all of those people who are dishonest in business and all that are such bad people inherently, right? But living in a world that they cannot trust, mm -hmm. you could understand that, okay, so if if no one is for me, who else is going to be for me but me? I can't afford 
to be objective when I look at issues of of good mm-hmm. and evil. I mm-hmm. must be subjective. I must look out for myself first. No one else will. So I have some thoughts of, of how this relates already to the bracha we've been looking at, but curious where you're going with this, Rabbi Foreman. So what was it then that God was waiting for? Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the first command was not to avoid eating from the tree. It was exactly. Eat, it was eat from all the others. God said yes There's before all, God said no. <laughs> God said yes before God said no. Yeah. There were all these delicious trees. Enjoy all the trees. Right? There's apple trees, there's pear trees, there's cherry trees. Eat from Mikol Itzagana Chol Tochel. Right? Mm-hmm. There's just one tree I don't want you to eat from. I'm not telling you why. It's a tree called Tree of Knowledge, Good and Evil. It's my special tree. Stay away from that. Mm-hmm. I want to argue that in those two commands, God was setting down the two axioms that are predicates for knowledge of good and evil, for conceptual understanding of good and evil. Before you start to deal conceptually with good and evil, you have to understand two things. A, your parent loves you and takes care of your needs. Here's all these wonderful trees. Eat from them. We needed to eat from them day in and day out. We needed to experience God's love consistently. We needed to wake up in the morning knowing that those trees were still there. And the morning after that, knowing that those trees were still there. We needed to understand that God loves us and is taking care of us so that we could build trust. Part of that trust, then, is understanding that, you know what? There's one tree that we're not supposed to eat from. It's his tree. But God loves me. And he's caring for me consistently. I trust, and the first act of trust is understanding that, you know what, I don't really know why that tree is off limits, but I trust my parent who loves me and who's taking care of me consistently, which is that, you know what, sometimes he just says that this is not for you, Mm. and I can trust that there is a reason for that that does not contradict his love. So the second predicate that I understand the first predicate is God loves me and he can be trusted and his love is consistent. And the mm-hmm. second predicate is sometimes he says no and that's okay. In the words of the Torah, the fundamental predicates are two emotional stances with reference to my creator called love and fear. Mm-hmm. And these are, in the words of Mishle, Reshit Chachma Yirat the very the predicate, the axiom of knowledge, before you get to anything else, is that it's okay for God to say no sometimes. Why? Because he loves me. Right? And once you have those two things, God says, now I'm ready to give you the tree. Why? Because I can trust that you will not just take your own self-interest mm-hmm. and stoop in and, and say that's good and that's evil because you understand the world is a good place. Mm-hmm. You understand your creator loves you. You understand the two things you need to understand, that love and fear of the creator are real. And now it's just working out the details. So sure, go ahead and work out what you think good knowledge of good and evil is. But If I don't trust, and I haven't yet had the chance to trust, Mm -hmm. and I'm suspicious, right? And I reach for the tree because I don't trust that you have a good reason to withhold it. Mm -hmm. And it's your power center, as the snake will argue, right? That God just wants the tree for himself because he's all selfish. And I insist on being suspicious, right? And make a power grab for the tree. Then the problem is I am doomed 
to miss the mark in my evaluation, my cognitive evaluation of good and evil. I will weaponize my ability to think and use it to justify whatever I want. And I will say that, yes, of course this is right. And I will rationalize up the wazoo. And I will use all my lawyer-like skills to Mm -hmm. convince myself and everyone around me that, of course, this is right when it's just self-serving. I will confuse the absolute good in terms of morality and what is right with what is good for me because I can't trust anyone to look out for me. Mm -hmm. And God was waiting for trust in a loving God to emerge. And the tragedy in our taking from the tree too soon was that we didn't learn that lesson yet. And we didn't see that truth about God. So we spurned the atachonen ladamdat. We didn't believe that God was loving. And of course, the greatest gift of all, even more than the trees, even more than food, would be the gift of knowledge. We didn't trust that God was loving enough to be able to bestow the knowledge that is such a godly thing, the ability to say, this is the way things should be, to be able to, like a creator, decide that I want the stars here, I want the heavens there, that God was going to hold that all for himself. And I think Atachonin Ladamdat goes back and says no. And as you put it before, Ami, in Shemon Esrei, one of the things you have to do is ask yourself, who's this God I'm praying to? Is it the javelin-throwing God? Mm-hmm. That's the God that the untrusting Adam who buys the snake's arguments thinks is God, mm-hmm. the God who would never allow us knowledge. Along comes the Shemon Esrei and says, that's not the God you're praying to, boys and girls. The God you're praying to is the God who's chonin ladam dat who wants nothing more than to be able to give you the gift. Just don't open the trunk and rip off the wrapping paper before he has a chance to give it to you. There's a good reason why he's waiting. He's waiting for you to develop that sense of trust. Wow. So so I just want to share with the listeners, these talks are unscripted. I've never heard this part of the theory from Rabbi Farid before. <laughs> so it's a lot Fair to enough. take in. And my mind is going like 100 miles an hour. One thing that really strikes me here, well, a couple of things. Number one is I'm hearing the framework here allows for me to experience something being withheld from me, not as an act of cruelty. Yes. But as part of that, A, just reality, the safe and good reality that I live in. And in the context vis-a-vis God... You know, it doesn't mean that God loves me any less. God is holding a larger picture for me and for this world that I exist in. That is a ultimately a a one that has my best interest in mind or that is for the for good and is built on love. And and having the founding of a loving relationship with God is what allows me to relate to what I don't have and kind of hold that picture nonetheless. And what Ben, by the way, now, if you come back, if you're really right that this is the story that the first bracha is referring to. What greater centering idea do you have that the sages put in than this, right? Think about what prayer is. Mm -hmm. Prayer is asking for what I don't have yet, what God has to this moment denied Mm me. Mm -hmm. Well, who who, who had to deal with that more than Adam and Eve? Mm-hmm. who are looking at this tree that they didn't have yet and had to figure out what kind of God would say no. 
They were dealing with the God who said no, which Mm -hmm. is frankly how we all approach prayer. Because if you've got nothing to ask for, then the middle brachot don't mean anything to you. Right. You have lacks. You have a God who says no. So how are you going to deal with a God who says no? You think he's the guy with the javelins and the big white beard who's delighting and saying no? How are you going to pray to him? Mm-hmm. Right? It ain't the God who's trying to say no. Mm-hmm. And God can say no without destroying the basis of love. Right? The great lesson that we did not learn in the original story. And somehow, come Chazal and say, as we personally begin to work through prayer, we find ourselves in Adam and Eve's shoes. Maybe we can center ourselves differently. Mm-hmm. Which also brings me to, to just one other piece that was mentioned in some of the comments in a, a number of different ways. People touching on the idea of, of this word da'at. Um, some of you and I discussed that it's not limited to cognitive capacities. It's not limited to moral judgments either. That da'at in the broadest sense has to do with our very ability to connect. Right? The, the language of intimacy is, is one of da'at. And, and I'm, I'm just kind of thinking here that in this paradigm you're, you're laying out, like where does moral judgment really come from? It, it comes from being trained in knowing how to appropriately relate to and interact with the world around me and other people and situations, right? Moral judgment, moral decisions of what's right or wrong in this scenario, that's an outgrowth of a, a more primal form of dot, which is I've learned how to live in situations such that my organizing principles inside of me can allow me to make a decision that's going to be an appropriate relationship also. But where do I learn appropriate relationship? I learned that from my interactions with my parents, from the way I'm raised, from those most right. fundamental forms of, of relationship. And, and to go back to Adam and Chava, so, you know, they're raised in God's garden. They were being taught da'at from God. What you're referring to then is this idea, if I understand you correctly, that da'at Kabbalistically is to reach out and touch someone in the words of Ma Bell, right? The the telephone company, right? I don't know if you're old enough to remember that, but when I was a kid, that was the that was the tagline for the 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 Bell companies, the Alexander Bell AT&T, is reach out and touch someone, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. what that is about is reach out and touch someone. That's why intimacy, sexual intimacy, the euphemism for that is dot, right? So there is something about knowledge and good and evil, which has to do with how do you reach out and touch others? Exactly. There's good ways to do it, and there's evil ways to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's the canvas on which the moral decisions of good and evil kind of play out. Right. Ami, let's build upon this and get to some of the other points that were raised in the hundred or so other comments. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not going to get to all of them here, um, but to some of the, the major themes. Um, you began to lay out a theory, the very, very beginnings of a theory, that these first of the bakashot, these first of the requests, had to do with the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. right? You're going to take that theory and sort of develop it as it goes forward into what is bracha number two about? What's bracha number three about? What's bracha number four about? And then if we sort of connect the dots, do we see a picture emerging Mm -hmm. as to what these 
what all of this kind of feels like. Mm-hmm. I'd like to take some some baby steps forward. And some of this was anticipated again in the, the comments, uh, which I, was very exciting. So it, one of the themes that we had in the comments also is people asking a little bit about the, okay, so I, I get the dot piece. What's about the bina piece? Of course, in Hebrew, there are two words for knowledge, right? One of them is dot, one of them is bina. Conventionally, dot translated as knowledge. Bina conventionally translated as understanding. Um, interestingly enough, Chazal, our sages, will often see Bina as a feminine kind of quality. Um, they will say that women famously right, are renowned to have more Bina than men, a Bina Yatera. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a feminine kind of thing. And we talk about understanding being granted to Enosh. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the fascinating things you talked to me about in, in, as we were preparing for this is that Enosh is somebody who shows up in the creation stories as well. You want to just kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I believe somebody mentioned the name Enosh in the comments there as well. If if this bracha really is taking us to, you know, Genesis territory, and atachonin la adam da'at. Adam isn't a generic term, but it's capital A, capital Aleph here. We're talking about Adam Arishon. Well, yep. the next phrase, Malamed le Enosh Bina, Enosh also shows up in those early stories of humanity. And Enosh is none other than the grandchild, the grandson of Adam and Chava. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a little funny because, well, if you're going to talk about Adam's descendants somehow, well, you skipped a generation there, right? Mm-hmm. And what I think is that is exactly the point. So the birth of Enosh is in um, Genesis chapter 4, in verse 26. Yeah, so I'll read it out, and I, I, I want to give kind of the, the, the what's in between here, but I'll just read this verse to you. This is um, the second birth story of Adam and Chava's children after Cain and Hephel were born, Cain and Abel. Um, Adam and Chava get back together and have another child, and this, is, this child is named Shait, or Seth, I believe, mm-hmm. in English. And Shait... He also has a son, Enosh. He names his son Enosh. Then people start to call in the name of Hashem. Now, maybe sounds a little strange. Why do I think Enosh is here in this early bracha? Why Enosh of all people? He's not somebody we really know stories about. Tell me your favorite story about Enosh, Rabbi Foreman. What is it? That's right. We don't know that much about him. We don't know that much about him. But what I want to claim here is that Enosh is actually a very important figure in the way that Da'at is applied and plays out, starting all the way from the Tree of Knowledge story until this verse that I just read to you. Okay, that sounds like a sweeping claim. Go ahead. What's your argument? So if you go all the way back to the Tree of Knowledge... Right? We all know Adam and Eve, they get kicked out of the garden. And immediately after they get kicked out of the garden, that's the last verse in chapter 3 of, of Genesis. The very next verse, Adam yadar chava ishto. Adam knows Chava, his wife. And that's a very suspect word there. No. So that's right? very that interesting right away. We have knowledge, 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 knowledge. Get out of my garden. Knowledge. <laughs> the knowledge in terms of intimacy. And it gets back to the point, I think, Ami, that we're talking about, which is what kind of intimacy, that if it's mm. true that the battleground on which moral questions play out is the battleground of 
connection to others. Mm-hmm. Here's a kind of connection to others, right? And I would go out on a limb here and just say the et is kind of suspect, mm-hmm. right? Because, I mean, what does et usually do in Hebrew? What is What function does et have in Hebrew? Yeah, I mean, et basically just just connects one one phrase to the next, one object to the next. Yeah. Specifically, a verb to a direct object. Mm-hmm. Now, if you take that idea, mm-hmm. how is Adam treating Chava? How is Adam treating Eve? Well, you just if said the it word as an for object. Intimacy as an object. As an object. Right. And if you think about intimacy as portrayed in Genesis chapter two, right? There's a certain kind of mutuality in it. Vehayu lebasar echad. Right, man mm. will be intimate with wife, and together they will become one flesh. But the first act of intimacy that's spoken of is Vayeda Adam et Chava Ishto, mm-hmm. is a man acting upon a woman almost as if a direct object. And here comes Eve, who conceives. And interesting when when she names Cain, right? What does that word mean? Kaniti Ish et Hashem, right? I have I have acquired, acquired a man. Mm-hmm. Acquired. What what does that name mean to you, Ami, as you ruminate? I have acquired a first of all, who is she leaving out of the picture? I have acquired a man with God. Mm-hmm. So her You know, it's almost God a res- it's almost a response, you could say, to if Adam is objectifying her and using her for something. That's means. right. Well then well, she just so She's doing him. the same thing here. Here I have yeah. look look at what I've look what I own now. Look what I yeah, acquired. I was the one who carried him in my womb for nine months. You just had a momentary contribution. What did you really contribute? If he diminishes her, she diminishes him. It's the great war of diminishment where everybody has their own way of seeing things, their own way of seeing what's good and what's right. And self-preservation is what it's all about, right? And which is the, the bitter fruits of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's playing out in the birth of a child that's named for this hyper-acquisitive word. Right. Kain, Kaniti, it's all about what you can acquire. And is there there any wonder that poor Kain can't find himself leaving go of enough of his crops because they're his, that he won't share the best of what he has to God? He has this idea of bringing an offering, but holds back because it's all mine, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so in a world in which it's all yours, right, this uh, this is the world of Kain. But Kain kills Havel, and all of a sudden you get... This next child, which brings you to Shate and the birth of Enosh. Well, so I would say even before there. then, I wouldn't say but Cain kills Hephel. I would say of course Cain kills Hephel. Cain kills because Hephel. if we right. look at what's happening with Dot, Dot is first taken, snatched, as it were, by human beings who are at the mercy of this withholding God. They take it for themselves. God tries to approach them. They don't seem to really be be ready to face God and, and get into this blame and accusation, uh, accusations and things like that. So God says, get out of my garden. And then when they get out of the garden, I I want to claim that the birth of Cain, the naming of Cain, is just a continuation of taking from the Etzadat. Look, it's mine. I've acquired it. Mm-hmm. So yep. comes acquire man, and he goes and acquire, does the biggest act of acquisition you could do, which is to dominate another person to the degree where you take away take their very life. life. And yep. when you read the next verses, it's all Cain. Okay, he wanders, he this, he that. But then you read Cain has descendants. He's got some children. A few generations later, you have Lamech, who also has some kind of strange murder story going on in his life. And that's like the end of Cain's lineage. So within this matter of verses, 
Da'at is taken, Da'at is used, Da'at produces Kayin, and, and, and takes away life. Then we get to chapter 4, verse 25. Vayeda Adam odet ishto, vateled ben. Once again, Adam knows his wife, and she gives birth to a son, Vatikrach Moshet. She now, names Vatikrach, him Shet. Again, it, it shows you who's doing the calling, who's naming Shet. Right. She names It has him. to be Eve. So the one who once called her child Cain, because she acquired this man with God, this over-possessive view of, of a child, now what does she name this child? Now she names him Shet, ki shat li Elohim zera acher tachat hevel ki harago Cain, for God has given me, shat li, right, Shet, the, the gifted child. He was gifted to me. God gave me a gift because my other child was It's completely was 180 degrees. Instead of the one who unwraps the present from the trunk of grandpa's car, right, I have acquired this man without acknowledging God's role at all, is humbly just saying, here's this gift that God has provided to me. I may have carried him in my womb for nine months, but this is just a gift, right? She has the pain of loss. She's lost Hevel. And now the only thing that means anything to her is mm. just this gift. And then this gifted child has this child of his own, Enosh, mm -hmm. which becomes a synonym for man, mm -hmm. right? And now what do we say Enosh has? Interestingly, Enosh is gifted, this other quality. And it's almost as if there's two ways of thinking about knowledge, almost like a hyper-masculinized, very competitive view of knowledge, which is Da'at, the powerful creator who goes and says, this exists in the world and this doesn't exist in the world and the stars will exist and this won't exist and uses Da'at to organize the world. And then along comes Shait, and along comes Enosh, and in the words of the sages in Shmon Esrei, God is not just the bestower of that. There's another kind of knowledge that mm -hmm. God gives, almost as if God himself has a masculine side, right, with the dot. Right. And remember that intimacy from the perspective of the man is that. Mm -hmm. Right. He is the one who is that purveyor. But there's a feminine way of seeing knowledge. And it's Bina. Almost as if there's this feminine side of God that mm -hmm. says, no, there's something called understanding. And by the way, in, in Chazal, Bina is Maven Davar Mitovdavar. To understand the implications of something, how something just unfolds folds. And if you think about the feminine view of knowledge or just the way that a fetus develops in right. a womb, it is Bina. Everything's in the DNA, right? It's just how does this child unfold? And the, the womb is the organ that is able to be maven davar mitoch davar, that is able mm -hmm. to just say, here is this child, let the implications of the child unfold let and see what develops, mm -hmm. let it emerge. And it's an entirely other way of looking at knowledge. And it's almost like if you allow God to give you knowledge, mm -hmm. you'll discover that not only is there dot there to be had, but there's a whole other kind of knowledge. Mm -hmm. If you just are patient and wait for the gift to be given to you, you'll discover that there's a whole other world too. There's the world of Bina, right? Interestingly, by the way, if you would say that there's sort of a masculinized name for God, Elohim, the God who's the judge, El, the God who's the power, right? A hyper-masculinized way of looking at things. Think about, is there a feminized word for God? A God, a word that ends in a hey, a word that's just there, right? For just being there with you, right? Mm. What's that word for God?
I think you're talking about Yud Kei Vav Kei. Right? Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey, which literally is a feminized name for God. It ends with a Hey, which is the 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 suffix of femininity, right? And what does Enosh do according to this verse? Well, Shait Gamhu Yulad Ben, go ahead. Vayikra Shmo Enosh Az Huchal Likro B'Shem Hashem. Then Huchal here, interestingly, kind of a passive verb. It is it is begun. He begins. To call in the almost name of, like the of feminine God. side of intimacy, right? If you think it's about it, something that, that emerges that, from Enosh. Something emerges from the, the name of, of Yod Kevavke begins to be called. And the one who was called Enosh, Vayikra Etchmo Enosh, as who Likro Hashem, mm-hmm. seems to introduce the knowledge to this world of this feminine side of God, side of God. God is not just the judge in the sky, not just the hyper-masculinized God who's there in competition for knowledge and trying to deny you a tree, right? But love is real, and just being there is real, and just nurturing someone for the sake of nurturing them is real. And Enosh gets in touch with another side of God, Later on in history, Abraham will take up this mantle of Enosh and over and over again, Vayikra B'Shem Hashem, Vayikra B'Shem Hashem, will introduce knowledge of this kind of God into the world, but it begins with Enosh. And the sages seems to be getting to that when they talk about God as the giver of both that to man, but ultimately Enosh introducing a more rarefied form of knowledge, perhaps, something mm-hmm. that is more subtle, right? Something that we call Bina. Ami, we've run out of time with with much more to say, but let me just, you know, tease kind of where we're going here as a way of ending, right? I think one of the challenges that we have going forward is Ami, this is all really nice. And and David, this David Foreman, me, right? This is all really nice and it's it's fantastic. But how do I know this isn't flights of fancy? You haven't really proven your case. You've suggested that possibly in this language of of uh, of the very first blessing, we're being rooted in the Adam and Eve stories, in the Enosh stories. I think what you're saying is intriguing, but I'm not willing to buy it yet. You need to establish more of a pattern. You have to show me going forward that there's some sort of connect the dots over here that's consistently happening, right? Can you go into the into the text, further into the text of Atachon and Lodom Dat. Can you go into the text of the second blessing, the third blessing, the fourth blessing, and show me dots that connect, that give me confidence in the theory? Right now, it's interesting speculation. How brass tacks, how is it more than speculation? It's that scientific lens. Is this real or is this just fantasy land? And I think Fascinatingly, Ami, as we begin to do that, not only will we establish, I think, the brass tacks of this theory more, but the further evidence that it's true will give us further clues into the depths of meaning in Shman Esrei as well, which is why I can't wait for session number three with you. So, Ami, thank you very much. We've only gotten to a few of the comments here. They were all wonderful. Going forward, guys, please continue. These comments are so helpful to us. We haven't even gotten to Psalm 94, which was uh, Nathan Light's comment, which we've got to get into. Yeah, so I'm going to turn it over to you, Ami, to, 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 um, sure. to sign us out. Um, and I just want to tell you, listeners, you know, some one of you mentioned to understand a text, I need to look at it up close and from far away. You've seen us these last few sessions go the up close lens. 
Um, Rabbi Foreman and I have a a faraway view that's going to also kind of give the overarching structure here that that really will help drive home the main theory. And uh, we're going to have to kind of temper and we're, you'll see we'll be moving in and out of the up close lens and the the broad lens. The broad lens, um, I hope we'll get into in our next session and really start to lay out a lot more of, okay, where are we going with this? What, where yeah, are we going with this and I, what could it mean? Right. Yeah, I've been tantalizingly referring to that broad lens with this this theory that Ami has. I think in session three, Ami will kind of give away the goods and suggest what your theory is and then begin try, to try to substantiate it. And then kind of using that mode of Vina, try to unfold, unfurl the maven dover, mitokodover, the implications of it, which I think are truly astounding. So thanks so much for a captivating, at least for me, session two. Can't wait for session three and to read what you guys have to say. See you then. Thanks a lot. See you soon.